Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. The Apostle Paul is arguably the greatest Christian that has ever walked on this earth. In fact, I would argue outside of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest figure that has ever set foot on the soils of this earth. We see that throughout Scripture, God used him in a great and mighty way. He was on the road of Damascus to go to Damascus to persecute and kill Christians in the book of Acts. And we see that God showed up to him in a very unique and special way and transformed his life. And he became one of the greatest proclamators of the good news of Jesus Christ in history. And time goes forward throughout the book of Acts and God called him to go on three missionary journeys. Throughout the book of Acts, we read of his first journey along with Barnabas. We read of his second journey along with Silas, and we read of his third journey. But in Acts chapter 8, excuse me, in Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul is on his second missionary journey, joined by Silas, and he comes to an area where he's introduced to a young man named Timothy. And there, Paul would bring Timothy underneath his leadership, and he would disciple him and mentor him, and then eventually would send him to Ephesus to pastor the church in that city. And time moves forward in the book of Acts chapter 16. And God gives Paul a vision and or a dream about going and visiting another city by the name of Philippi. And we read in Acts 16 that as Paul goes to the city of Philippi, he is introduced to a woman by the name of Lydia. She was a businesswoman. She was a seller of purple, the Bible says in Acts 16. And Paul goes into her house and they begin to talk about the things of God and about Jesus. And we see how she was a believer and her life was transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all that was going on in that day, we see that the Bible tells us in that chapter that a a person who is possessed by a demonic spirit comes and they pray over this this spirit. And and the Bible speaks about how some of the individuals who who were alive in that time didn't like what was going on. And they brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates and leaders. And as a result, the Bible says they were thrown in prison. And you know the story how how they were praying and singing praise to God at midnight and the jail cells shook and the earthquake shook and, and it shook in such a way that the cells bursted open. And the jailer, the guy who was in charge, the guard, comes in and falls before Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And he says, Your house can believe too and they'll be saved too if they believe on Jesus. And to make a long story short, the jailer and his whole household received Christ. And and finally, they are released from prison. And they go back to Lydia's house. Why would the Bible mention to us about Lydia, who is a woman, who is a businesswoman, who sold this stuff that was purple? Why would it mention this? Well, one of the key ways that we can seek to understand what was going on in Thyatira here in Revelation chapter 2 is Acts chapter 16 because the Bible says that Lydia was of the city of Thyatira. And as we come to Revelation chapter 2 
In order to fully understand the whole picture of Paul's missionary journeys, we need to understand this, that the influence of Paul was so strong in Asia Minor of his day that this woman most likely and her family would eventually go back to Thyatira and share the good news of Jesus Christ and many would come to Christ and a church was most likely birthed through all this. Thyatira was, a, was perhaps the, the least illustrious of the seven cities of Revelation. Remember, as you would come to Ephesus on the Romans road, on the Roman road back in that day, it was, it was like a big circle. And along the, the circle, there was these seven cities. And, and the fourth city on this road was Thyatira. And the history was, was uneventful in Thyatira. And it is scarcely mentioned by any of the ancient writers. In fact, we don't read about Paul's direct influence or any of the other apostles' direct influence in this city. Coinage suggests that lying as it did on a great highway linking two river valleys, Thyatira was a garrison town for many centuries. The city was a center of commerce, and the records preserve references to more trade guilds than those listed in any other Asia city of their day. Lydia, as I shared with you, whom Paul met in Philippi, was a Thyatiran seller of turkey red or purple, a purple dye, for which Thyatira was very famous for Necessity for guild membership in a trading community must have strengthened the temptation to compromise in this church. Thus, it is appropriate to find a woman here who is named or perhaps nicknamed Jezebel, the princess who, by marrying Ahab, sold his trading partnerships with the Phoenicians, coincides with this same individual named Jezebel who led a party of compromise in the Thyatiran church. Thyatira played no significant part in the later history of the church. As we come to this section of scripture, I believe the message that we can glean from these many verses is this thought. The church that tolerates sin. Thyatira will go down in history to be remembered as the church that tolerates sin. Today, my key statement for, to summarize this message is this. If we fail to deal with sin immediately, it will destroy us completely. If we fail to deal with sin immediately, it will destroy us completely. We see that the church in Thyatira were relaxed in their, in their view of sin. And they, they were relaxed in their understanding that God takes sin very seriously. And so as we read these words in this church to Thyatira that were spoken by God the Son to John the Apostle, which gave to an angel to deliver to this church, that, that as we read these words, that it was just as much meant for them then as it is for us today. So today I want to ask this question. What lessons can we learn from the church of Thyatira for the church of today? Will you come with me as we travel through this text? In verses 18 to 23, I wrote down a first thought I want to relate to you. God brings judgment to those who tolerate sin in the church. God brings judgment to those who tolerate sin in the church. Notice, before we get into verse 20, I want to share with you verse 18 and 19. Look at these verses. The Bible tells us again, just like it does in all of these churches, it starts off by saying, the angel to the church of that city. And we see in this case, it's Thyatira. 
This is most likely a messenger that, that God is using to deliver this word to these people. Now, it's interesting. When you begin to study these seven churches, you begin to notice so far in the four churches we've seen in, in, in Revelation 2 that it, many of these beginning verses goes back to Revelation 1 about the vision John had about Jesus. And so here we see that in John, John in his vision in chapter 1, verse number 12, sees Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, and that displayed Jesus in his humility and his humanity, how he came and lived among us. But here in Revelation 2, verse 18, John is viewing him not as the Son of Man, but as the Son of God. This displays the divinity and divine attributes of God the Son, how he is God. And then the Bible says, who, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire. Many decades ago, our nation was introduced to a superhero. He had a cape, and he was dressed in red and blue. He was from a whole other planet, and he was extremely strong, and his weakness was kryptonite. And he had supernatural capabilities. He was like a god that we read in the comic books and we see in the TV shows and the movies with incredible strength. But what was able to overcome his strength was that kryptonite. But as we think about Superman and his magnificent abilities that, far, that are far superior than any of ours, we see that when he would be face-to-face -face with the villains or the bad guys or the enemies, and when his indignation and wrath would come to a point that he could no longer stand it, you know what he did, right? He would look dead square in the eye at those people, and the beams of red, laser beams, would zoom out of his eyes. It's a symbol of indignation and wrath and judgment. And we see that here, the usage that John uses is very similar. But the Bible says that Jesus had eyes that were like unto fire. This signifies that Jesus is coming to bring judgment to this church. And then the same thing is, is meaning by the phrase, his feet are like fine brass. I know we live in a culture, we live in the church age in our time that emphasizes that Jesus is a God of love. And yes, he is a God of love. The Bible says in multiple occasions that God is love. The Bible says God loved the world. The Bible says that, that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us to demonstrate his love to us. But in the midst of all these verses about God's love, we also read verses like this that display God's character and how God is, ju is just, he's full of justice, and he will bring just judgment to those who do not hearken to his word. The Bible tells us, as I mentioned before, that judgment always begins with the house of God. And in these first few verses, we are displaying this truth that God brings judgment to those who tolerate sin in the church. And in verse number 19, it's, it's, the, it's the verse of praise, as, as we always see in these, these verses in these churches, that, that God is going to commend them for something. And really, there's five, there's, in the King James, there's six things mentioned, but there's really five words mentioned. Works is mentioned twice. So it's, he's, he's saying, hey, I know your works. I know your charity or your benevolent love. I know your service. I know your faith. I know your patience. And he says all of these things, unlike the church of Ephesus, how they started off good and they waxed cold in their love. And their service. Here the Bible says that, they, that these people in Thyatira started off in a way and were in a moment now at the end where their service and works and love was even greater. And then verse 20. We see in this verse 
God condemns the church's sin specifically before sending his judgment. Condemn, it means to declare guilty. God is bringing up this verse here to set the record straight that what is transpiring in this ancient church is not the will of God and it does not coincide with the word of God. And it is not the way the church of the living God should be conducting herself. It says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Check it out now. It says, because thou sufferest. Now the King James uses the word suffer and all it means is allow. So here in this verse, it is saying singular here, thee, the one church. And it says that you are allowing this woman, Jezebel. Now let's pause right here. Now, was, was this woman who is a prophetess in the day of Thyatira, was she actually named Jezebel or was it a, was it a type of the Old Testament Jezebel? Well, there's no way to be certain, but how many people, how many women, by the way, do you know whose name is Jezebel? <laughs> how many of you women would you, how many of you parents today or maybe future parents, how would you like to name your, your little daughter Jezebel? Would that be a name that would bring honor to that young lady? Absolutely not. So most likely, Jesus is bringing up this Old Testament woman who is named Jezebel to emphasize a point that just as Jezebel in the days of Elijah and, and she married King Ahab and she introduced paganism and false idolatry and immorality into the body of believers called the Jewish faith back in the Old Testament, the same way that Jezebel back then did that is the same way that this Jezebel is doing it. Today. I find it interesting here that, that there's a connection here with women. Because most likely in Thyatira, it was a very feministic culture where women had great power. We see that just, just in Acts chapter 16 where Lydia was a businesswoman. Nothing wrong with a woman being a businesswoman, by the way. But here there was a great rise in a feministic culture of the Thyatira period. And we see that, that just as God can use a man and a woman, Satan can also use a man and a woman to accomplish his, his means of plans. And so we see that Satan is using this woman who is named Jezebel to accomplish his destruction to the church. God uses a woman named Lydia to bring the good news of the gospel back to Thyatira. So today we see grace and the love of God displayed here. But the Bible says that she called herself a prophetess. There will always be people who say they are speaking on behalf of God and are not whether it's YouTube, TV, radio, or even in churches right here in Roanoke. That's why it's imperative that when we hear somebody expound Scripture, that we listen carefully and we take what is said and sift it through the Word of God to not just believe everything that is spoken, but to take it and, and compare it with what the Word of God actually says. And there was a lack of that going on in the Thyatiran church. And the Bible says that, that this woman came in and began teaching and began seducing the servants of Christ to do all these things. Now, just so you understand this, there was a little threat. There was little threat in this church of persecution for the believers in the city. But there was a more subtle temptation, and that is this, social acceptance. You see, there was all these guilds. There was these places of, of coming together and, and working and becoming members of these unions, in a sense, kind of similar to today. And there was these things that, that these, they had these feasts of these guilds offering to these gods, and they were very lavish parties that, that everyone ex were expected to attend. And they included three basic elements. Number one, 
A cup of wine poured out in worship of a false god. Number two, a fellowship meal which included excessive drinking and drunkenness. And number three, a sexual orgy following the meal. And if you're involved in any of these labor unions, you are expected to partake in these events. So Christians were placed in a terrible situation of participation or rejection. And that ultimately meant that if they didn't attend these events, they would lose their job. As I've been studying these churches, I find this church is probably one of the most, chur- most applicable churches to our day. That, that we are seeking to become so accepted socially that we've forgotten that we need to be accepted by God Almighty first and foremost. That we are so concerned about fearing what man says than about fearing what God says. So hear me well today, I I say this respectfully, that I don't care what law is written by man. My allegiance is to the word of God, first and foremost. And today we need to understand this, that, that when somebody comes on the scene and they start teaching stuff in the name of Christ, we need to sift it through the word of God. And there's gonna be people that are gonna be saying they're in the name of Christ and they're doing it in a way to seduce you to believe something else and then to act in certain ways. And so here there was a temptation to commit the sexual sin, like I mentioned in the church of Pergamos, and to offer and to partake in, the, in, the, in, the, in these meats that were offered to idols. And so here we see in this verse, God condemns the church's sin specifically before sending his judgment. God is going to declare us guilty of our sin, and we're all guilty, my friends. All of us. I'm guilty. You're guilty. Every woman, boy and girl, we're all guilty. We've all come short, and we we need the grace of God. And verse 21, we see God calls the church to repent sincerely before sending his judgment. You see, God will always... Declare a sinner guilty by breaking his law. And then God will always give a time period where he is calling people to change their mentality about sin. And this is the case for this woman Jezebel and all those who are engaged in her spiritual adultery. So he goes on to say, and I give her space to repent. Now, this word repent appears twice in verse 21 and once in verse 22. And when you study this word, at least in these two verses, and really all throughout scripture, it simply means this, this a change of mind. That's all it means. And so here he's, he's giving this woman and all those associated with her a time period to change their mind about what they're teaching and what they're doing to confess their sins before God and to to say, God, I'm sorry, I'm broken, I'm grieved over my sin and I want to get right with you. Today, I'm reminded of of all of the the sin that is tolerated in the church today and how we just sweep it underneath the rug. My friends, God is calling us to holiness. And that was a a part that at least the majority of the people in the entire church, they they were lax in their holiness. So if there's sin in your life, Confess it. Now, some people will come to these verses and they'll try to to either argue one way or the other that this is a spiritual adultery that's going on or it's actual physical adultery. And I would lean towards a combination of both. That this woman who is named Jezebel is committing a spiritual adultery by teaching false doctrine and it's leading these people in a way that's gonna be acting like the pagan culture of their day. 
to not be separated from them. And so God is calling the church here, not the unbelievers here, but the church to repent. And the interesting thing about this woman, Jezebel, is she knew what she was teaching was wrong, scripturally. But she went on anyway. Teaching false theology, false doctrine. And then to seduce believers. But that leads me to verses 22 and 23. And in fact, as we come to verses 22 and 23, you know, the only reason why I still have social media is to try to redeem it for the cause of Christ. Because there's so much junk that goes on on there. But just recently I was sharing about the immutability of God. I was talking about how God cannot change. And some, somebody commented on, on one of my posts and said, I guess God did change a lot from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so I respectfully just replied. I said, in what ways did God's character change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? And I knew in their mind they were thinking this, that the Old Testament God is all about wrath and, and fury and indignation and judgment. And the New Testament God is all about love and peace and joy. And I just respectfully would like to say to everybody that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And the last time I checked, Revelation is not lodged between Genesis and Malachi. Revelation is the last book of the New Testament. And we see right here in verses 22 and verse 23 that the God who is a God of love is also a God of judgment. And the Bible says, behold, I will cast her. In other words, I will throw her into a bed. And them, so all the individuals who are associated with her and her teachings and her wicked deeds, all those that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now, do not mistake this, these two words with the great tribulation coming in the book of Revelation of the seven years that's, that God is going to unleash his wrath upon this world. Don't mistake that here. This is saying that this church is going to experience a time of intensive pressure of trials because of their refusal to repent of their sins. Now understand this, that sometimes trials happen to us because it rains on the just and the unjust. But then there's times that, that God actually sends trials in our lives in a time when we are living in complete, absolute rebellion towards the word of God so that God can wake us up and call us to repent. Now you say, well, where is the grace of God in all of this? Well, the grace of God is found in verse 21. But in the midst of God ushering out and thundering out his judgment in verse 22, the Bible says here, except they repent of their deeds. God is, is a gracious God who is full of justice. And what I mean by that is this, that in the midst of God always declaring his judgment and condemnation and damnation, he's always giving people time to come to him in genuine repentance and faith. Whether you're lost or whether you're saved and you're living in sin. So as we read verses 22 and 23, we think about how God chastens the church completely when sending his judgment. So now his judgment's coming. And in verse 23, look at this. This is interesting. It says, this is the New Testament, man. This is not my opinion. This is the oracle of God. It says, I will kill, literally slay. It says, I will kill and slay her children. With death. Now, does this mean her actual biological children? Most likely not. Most likely what it means is all those who have been converted to her pseudo-Christian beliefs. And it says he's going to kill them all with death. That is the, the trial, I believe, that most likely is, is being referred to. And then it says, and all, why? Why would God do this? 
Well, because God is serious about sin, and God doesn't want sin in his church. And he says, so all the churches will know that I am he which searches the reins and the heart. So the term reins here in the Bible, it's also often a term that we use for kidney. And obviously the term heart is, is, is the organ that pumps blood in our body. So here, in other words, God is saying, I am the one that searches the deep parts of your innermost being. And God's word, it cuts. God's word, it pierces. God's word convicts. And then it says, I will give unto you, it says, I will give unto every one of you according to your works in Thyatira. God brings judgment to those who tolerate sin in the church. If we fail to deal with sin immediately, it will destroy us completely. I'm telling you, sin is serious. Today, we live in an age and a culture of, of Christianity where sin is not serious, where sin is not taken seriously. But God's word is serious. That's why God mentions it so many times. And that leads us to verses 24 and 25. So what lessons can we learn from the church of Thyatira for the church of today? Well, first of all, God brings judgment to those who tolerate sin in the church. But secondly, God blesses those who remain pure in the church. God blesses those who remain pure in the church. Let's read these two verses. It says, but unto you I say, now, there is a portion of Thyatira, these believers who were accepting and following the false teachings of this woman named Jezebel. But then there was a group who were not following her and were continuing in the pure faith of Christ. So it says, but I say unto the, uh, it says, but I say, but unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which you have heard, that which you have already hold fast till I come. So as I read these verses, here's what I want you to understand. God blesses those who keep their doctrine pure. God blesses those who keep their doctrine pure. So the question is, what exactly was this woman Jezebel teaching? Well, we don't exactly know. It's different than than the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, as we mentioned previously in the churches, but most likely... What, what, this, what this means, most likely, this is what I would lean towards along with many others, is that the teaching that this Jezebel was, was going around sharing was that you can remain a Christian and still partake in all of these pagan sins and worship of false gods. So you could remain a Christian and still live in an immoral way. You can remain a Christian and still worship false deities. And we understand that is not true. So our doctrine is serious. I know I mentioned it last week, but I'm just going to mention again that Bible doctrine and theology is the most important part of the local church because it's the word of God. Bibliology is the term we get for the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. And it, it is serious. What we believe about the word of God is going to affect of how we behave as a child of God. And so understand this, that that when you are listening to preaching, when you're listening to a pastor speak or, or you're in a church like this or some other church or no matter what the future has for you, understand this, that, that Bible doctrine and theology should be the most important aspect of the local church. And unfortunately today, it's the least important aspect. I mean, today, when people are trying to find a new church, they're, they're looking for, you know, how is the music and, and, and what is the children's program like? 
I mean, those are important things. Don't misunderstand me. But the number one priority for a local church is to highly exalt the theology that it believes. And unfortunately, we live in a culture who says we don't need theology from the pulpits. We need motivational speeches. Kind of like, the, as I said last week, these spiritualized TED Talks. And you can have your spiritualized TED Talks. I want the Word of God. Listen, I, I've seen enough Hollywood movies. You don't, have to, you don't have to have a light show for me. You don't have to, you don't have to do cartwheels for me in the sermon. You, know? you don't have to do all that stuff. I want the pure Word of God. And that means that we need to know the Word of God for ourselves. So that when we hear somebody who might be like a Jezebel spirit and come in and be like, hey, 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 hey you don't have to do all that. That's not really what the Bible teaches. So that we can sift through ourselves. Notice here it says, it says they have not known the depths of Satan. The Bible talks about how we can know the secrets of God or the deep parts of God, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you can't know that unless you're getting into it yourself. It is not enough to only be in the Bible on Sunday mornings as somebody is expounding it in Sunday school or in a service like this. We have to get in God's word every day because it is the nourishment for our souls. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God bless those who keep their doctrine pure. But now check it out now. As I continue to read these verses and think about this church, God blesses those who keep their worship pure. The modern church is all about creating an atmosphere of experience. And I, I like some of the music, don't misunderstand me. But they have their pads out and their keys while the preacher's preaching. They have their pads out in the service and, and having this, this sound that sounds and feels spiritual. But just because it feels that way doesn't mean it is. And understand this, that worship is not just music. In fact, right now we're worshiping God by expounding his word and hearing his word proclaimed. We're worshiping God when we're praying. We're worshiping God when we're giving. And we are worshiping God while we're singing. But I'm afraid that, that in, in the culture today that we have in the modern church, that we're so engrossed with the spirit of Thyatira, that, that we're so concerned about how, how others view us from the outside world, that we're trying to, we're trying to do so much with, with how well the music is and, and how polished the messages are delivered, that we're so concerned about the lost coming into hearing the word, when really the church is to go out into the world and share the gospel with those that are lost. And this gathering is for the saved saint of God. So our worship has got to remain pure. And that leads me to this, where in verse 25, it says, hold fast till I come. In other words, obedience. So God blesses those who keep their doctrine and worship pure, but also their obedience pure. You see, the first time the word worship is mentioned in the English Bible is in the book of Genesis. And there's no organ out, there's no piano out, there's no six-string guitar. There's none of that. Abraham looks to the people that were traveling with him and says in Genesis 22 that, that myself and the lad, we're going to go up on that hill and we're going to worship. And the whole context is just being obedient 
to the word of God when God commanded him to take his son and to place him on the altar and to offer him as a sacrifice, ultimately typifying that one day the Lamb of God would come and be sacrificed for sin once and for all 2,000 years ago so that we could have life in him. And so we see that when Abraham, when he lifted up that dagger, God, he heard the voice of God speak and, and, then, and, then, and then the Bible says that God provided a lamb. And here we see that this term worship back in the book of Genesis is just a term that we can associate with obedience. And so the greatest aspect of of worship today is, is understanding the word of God and obeying the word of God. God blesses those who remain pure in the church. God brings judgment to those who tolerate sin in the church. If we fail to deal with sin immediately, it will destroy us completely. And that brings me to the last section here, verses 26 down to verse 29. What's the third lesson we can learn from the church of Thyatira for the church of today? Well, it's this. God bestows his promises to those who remain faithful in the church. God bestows his promises to those who remain faithful in the church. Look at verse 29. It says, and he that overcometh, This term overcome is used in all of the churches in chapter two so far. And it's just a term that means victory. So God promises victory to those who who are faithful. He's gonna give us victory and we have victory through Jesus Christ because Jesus defeated death, because Jesus defeated the grave, because Jesus defeated hell and defeated sin. So can we overcome and have a victorious Christian life knowing that our victory and battle has been won because of the work of the cross and we get to live in victory for all eternity eternity with him in glory. So God promises victory to those who are faithful. But then the Bible goes on to say, it says, and keepeth my works unto the end. To him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Now I know what I'm about to say is going to be very controversial right now in this part of church history that we're living out. Because a lot of people no longer believe this, but I believe it's true wholeheartedly. But here, verse 26 and verse 27, God promises not just victory, but authority to those who are faithful. And these verses here, I'm not talking about how God is gonna give you some type of authority like, like at your job. I'm talking about how one day in the future, these verses are pointing us to Revelation chapter 20, where the Bible says that Jesus is gonna reign for 1,000 years and we are going to reign with him. In fact, Psalm 2, verses 6 through, nine, six through 8, the psalmist is, is going and, and looking into the future about the millennial kingdom and how the lion will lay down with the lamb and how, how there will be like a period of peace and there will finally be a pure government in the world that is because Jesus Christ will be the king. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 speaks of this. And then again in Revelation 20. Did you know, and six times in Revelation 20, the Bible says a thousand years. There's gonna be people who will come and try to explain it away how all of that is, 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 is what took place back in the days of Christ, but it's not. It's a future event that God has promised in many of the prophets of the Old Testament and is gonna live out after the tribulational period. Seven years of God pouring out his, his, his wrath on this world, even though there's grace there, and we'll talk about it soon enough. But then he's going to physically return and defeat the Antichrist and all those associated with him and then establish his kingdom. And God is going to give us a, a place of authority there to rule and reign with him. And what a great period of peace it will be. 
But then, verses 28 and 29, we see God promises eternity to those who are faithful. It says, I will give him the morning star. Later in the book of Revelation, we read about how Jesus is called the bright and morning star. So this is literally saying that I will give, Jesus is saying, I will give you myself, is all that he's saying. Because remember, he's the one speaking here. Some have tried to, to say that this is, that it could be referring to when the church is raptured just before the tribulation and how Jesus comes and there, there the church will be given Christ. Now, maybe it is mentioned that, but, but I just lean to believe that, that in eternity, our gift is the presence of Almighty God, the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then check it out now. Look at verse 29. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, of course, all of these seven churches are going to receive this message. And there will be a time that we will be tempted to not listen and hearken to the voice of God. And I remember that, that, that for many, many years of my life, I was being told what the Word of God says, but I was not, in a sense, listening to the Word of God. Because, in a sense, I believe that, that it is the Holy Spirit that opens our ears so that we can hear the Word of God. And so, in a sense, for the first 16 years of my life, I was literally a walking zombie. Now, there were times in my life prior to me coming to faith that, that Jesus was shaking me and trying to awaken me, but I was dead in my trespasses and iniquities. I was dead in my sin. And I, in a sense, was a walking tomb. But then, when I was 16 years old, I can't explain it other than the Holy Spirit of God awakened me out of my sinfulness. And understand this, that it's only the power of the Spirit that can awaken us when we're dead in sins. And it's only the power of God that can overcome somebody to awaken, to, to, to pull the blinders that Satan has placed upon all of humanity and to reveal us that we are sinners and we need a Savior and we can have salvation in Christ. But I find it interesting as we were talking after the first service, so I didn't mention this in the first service, so you guys are blessed. <laughs> but this is a message for the, for, for the church. And the church can get so calloused in their sin that they no longer listen and heed the word of God. And we see that the Bible says in, in Timothy where there will come a generation that they will not endure sound doctrine, but they will rather go to those who are, are tickling and having they're, they're having their ears tickled and listening to preaching and teaching is that's only what they want to hear. And man, if that's not a verse for today, I don't know what else is. So as we kind of come to a close today, I want to ask you this question. How do you want to be remembered when you're gone? This church, the way we remember them is they were a church that tolerated sin. How do we as a church want to be remembered? But, but greater yet, how do you as an individual want to be remembered? As we close this message, I want to share with you two people that you've all heard of and how they finished their race in two different ways. The first one is Billy Graham. I'm sure most of you have heard of him, the late Reverend Billy Graham. Probably preached the gospel to more people in the world that the world has ever seen and heard. Well, now, whether you agree with everything that he said or done throughout his ministry, what you can't agree on is this, is that he never failed morally. I find it interesting that when him and George Beverly Shea and Cliff Barrows and their team would get together, they, they, they devised this pack of, it was kind of like a holiness pact. They were going to set guardrails up in their life that would help them not fall into sin. And 
Of course, this was in a time when really there was not much evil going on in television, but maybe to them it was evil. And so, like not today, like not like today. But so what they would do is they would take a towel, they would get into their hotel room, and they would put a towel over top of the television, and then they would take the Bible, and they would put the Bible on top of the TV, so that if they were tempted to watch anything on the screen, they would have to pull the Bible off first, and then the towel, and then they would also unplug the television. They also decided that, that they were never going to be alone in a room with another woman that was not their wife. They set guardrails up in their life, and you know what? Many, they all, they were faithful to the Lord. But there's another guy I want to share with you that you've heard about recently who apparently did not set guardrails up in his life. And his name is Ravi Zacharias. I was shocked when I heard the news about him. I listened to him. I have many of his books and as you go back and you listen to, to his messages and his lectures, he was heavy on philosophical reasons why he believed in God, but light on scriptural reasons why he believed in God and Jesus. And understand this, that both of those characters, Billy Graham and Ravi Zacharias, are dead. We want to finish well in the life that we live, not just while we're alive, but also while we're dead. And so now, the level of influence that Billy Graham has is only going to increase. I mean, I get so encouraged by his messages, his little sermonettes that people put on social media. They're so encouraging. But I'll tell you, now when somebody sees a little clip by Ravi Zacharias, they're going to think of his immoral failures. So how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as, as a church or a Christian who is faithful and pure? Or do you want to be remembered as a church or a Christian who tolerated sin in their life? If we fail to deal with sin immediately, it will destroy us completely. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.